Welcome to the Choate Family Office podcast series. On this show, we explore important topics related to investing, managing risk, and sustaining long-term wealth across generations. We believe that all investors can learn from the ways that successful families manage their wealth. Hi, everyone. This is Tamara Alamedine of Choate Investment Advisors. I'm joined today by Jim Robillard. Jim Robillard is the founder and chief investment officer of Spyglass Capital Management, a long-only concentrated growth manager based in San Francisco, California. Jim founded Spyglass in 2015 after spending more than 11 years at Edgewood Management, first as a senior research analyst and then as a managing director and member of the portfolio management team. Though Spyglass has just been around for five years, it's already a successful investment firm with more than a billion dollars of assets under management. Good afternoon, Jim. How are you? Hey, Tamara. How are you? I'm doing well. Thanks for having me. Jim, I wanted to start just with a simple question of why small companies? You spent the bulk of your career prior to this at Edgewood, which is focused on large cap firms, and then you decided to uh, transition to looking at and investing in small cap companies. Sure, uh, it's it's a great question. I, I I think it it really comes from if you look at the the whole scope of my career, uh, dating back to the mid '90s, I, I did begin my career in small caps uh, with Ron Barron in New York, um, and and I've always been fascinated by smaller companies, and and I think they're part of that is just the obvious nature of the fact that we know that there are more targets than there are people uh, doing the research in, in small cap. The, the research is is not as well financed and there are more inefficiencies in the marketplace. And and while I was at Edgewood, uh, which is a fabulously successful firm that yeah, I'm incredibly proud to have been a part of, um, one of the things that we found was that we were, the longer we owned businesses, the better we would oftentimes do uh, understanding the business, being able to react to information that was becoming available to us, um, and, and then also incorporate that information into our own positions in terms of whether or not the stock was undervalued or or, or not. And we, we the, the more information we had, the longer we had, the duration mattered. And so I found myself at Edgewood trying to find kind of smaller and smaller companies over time, despite the fact that we were a large cap, I, I liked the idea of finding very small, small, very small large caps that would ultimately become leaders in their space. And as Edgewood grew, uh, that, that became a little bit more challenging mathematically. And I went to my partners at the time and I said, listen, you know, we're deploying capital at, at one level, but I, I, as, I, as I look down cap, there are lots of businesses that I'm seeing at these conferences and running into through the course of due diligence on our names that I think we could we could own. And I think are really interesting. I think we can identify whether or not they're likely to be leaders over time. We should start this research process earlier. And so that led to a series of conversations around whether or not Edgewood could ever develop a product down cap from its large cap product. And because they wanted to be a single strategy firm, there was really no way to do that at Edgewood. And so while the conversation was going on, I investigated my own interest in, in exploring small and medium-sized companies you know, as a, as a separate business model. And while Edgewood couldn't do it internally, they, they did back me to, to start Spyglass on my, as a 
separate entity. And you know, we, we were able to use many of the same fundamental tools to discover these names, just just a much smaller size is where we think there are systematic opportunities that are that are unique to small and medium-sized companies because of basically the, the way the Wall Street coverage engine works. Uh, more resources are dedicated to bigger businesses that do more banking deals. There's just less um, there's just less coverage down there and more inefficiencies for us to exploit. Well, this is a great segue to my next question, which is what do you look for in a typical investment? What types of characteristics do you typically find in companies that you've that uh, are proved to be good investments? Yeah, I think you know we talk a lot about this with investors that we we have these seven core criteria, and and the the first two really set up everything else. But the the first two are, is the company uh, a leader in its space, and then that comes through, you know, hundreds of hours of due diligence on an industry and on the individual business, and in determining whether or not the company is either the leader or likely to become the leader over time in the in the uh, sector of the market that they operate in. The next and equally important component is what's our assessment of management? Because we tend to be very long-term investors measured in three to five or more years at a time, we're really underwriting the quality of the management team at the end of the day. This is a financial model is, is hugely impacted by the decisions of senior management. And we think that other investors sometimes misunderstand how significantly the results can be affected by good and or bad decisions. And so we want to have a lot of confidence in those people. If we have a business that we think is likely to be a leader because of its products and services, and we think we have an ultimately extremely competent management team that can navigate through all the pitfalls that are ahead of the business and execute its strategy and lead the business to its to its full p- potential over time, th- that gives us confidence that we have the next three components, which are sustainable competitive advantages, and then those lead to above average revenue growth, above average earnings growth. And then the, the, the sixth component is interesting, which is a, is a requirement. The, we need to have a level of financial discipline at the company where the business can withstand you know, significant exogenous shocks and still operate. And I think one of the clearest examples of that is through the course of COVID-19, because of this component, you know, we have not had to liquidate a single holding because of a liquidity or balance sheet issue that we looked at uh, at our portfolio of companies. Now, we did not anticipate the severity of COVID-19 prospectively. I want to be clear about that. I'm not saying that we did. I'm saying that one of the clear benefits of having this constraint on making an, a, a, an investment of being financially capable you know, allowed us to, to weather the storm better than many of our peers. And those are the first six components that get a stock into our universe. Um, and then valuation is the seventh component of the criteria that, that allow us to, to put, the port, put the stock in the, in the portfolio. So Jim, you brought up uh, the, the current crisis how have you adapted your investment approach to navigate through this period? And uh, where do you see uh, opportunities? So, so it's very interesting. The crisis itself, an immense global tragedy, you know, horrible things happening. Ironically, and I, and I don't mean this to sound, I don't want this to sound callous, but it has been, it has been good uh, for certain businesses. I mean, the reason it's been good is that it has, further cemented leads that they've had in their industry groups or or has helped raise the awareness of the solution to its end market. 
And so if you think of like businesses that we've owned, like Everbridge, which does critical event management or alerting, you look at DocuSign, which allows you to transact complex contracts across the internet. You look at Equinix, which helps route internet traffic uh, efficiently and reliably around the globe, to name a few. These these names you know, are, there have been businesses that have been distinct beneficiaries. And what I think if you look at something that has been happening for really more than a decade, which is the move to cloud, the COVID crisis has really accelerated that trend. If you weren't a cloud-centric enterprise, municipality, organization, pick your noun, you are going to be now. And there's really no no choice but to be. If you can't operate in a completely decentralized fashion, then you're you're not able to capitalize across um, what is, in all probability, likely to happen again. Uh, and and you and you need to begin to plan for the next issue. And that now that the uh, the pandemic, you know. It, while we've had them in the past, we've never had global coordination and social media to make it as salient as this one has been. And I think that this is going to require businesses to be much more agile in the face of those developments going forward. And so that I think is a big move. And then I think you know other other things that have made businesses resilient is just is you know balance sheet strength and and being leaders in their space. Because if you imagine that the business will survive. The acuity, the acute phase of the of the crisis, they're likely to be well suited to benefit on the back end, and that's kind of an interesting point, is that periods of of stress in the market, in the economy, while they while they put pressure on everybody, it's much harder on the businesses that are the least well suited to survive the adversity, and so there, it is a little bit of a clearing event from a competitive perspective where. If you're a business that had three or four smaller competitors that were not well-funded, maybe were levered trying to keep up with you, or were investing very aggressively, or were not financially sound, those businesses are going to disappear because they weren't well-stewarded. And as a result, the open space for a, a spyglass-type business, actually, uh, the opportunity has actually broadened uh, and become you know, significantly more, more substantial. Right. So... It's applying these uh, characteristics, the seven characteristics that you highlighted, and it's not quite as simple as buying technology companies. We've seen that you know the technology sector as a whole has held up better, but where do you see sort of the the uh, differ- differences within technology, and where best to apply sort of the principles that you adhere to? We believe that technology as an area of investment is becoming much more pervasive across the economy. And so while our portfolio is technology heavy, there are it's it's not quite as simple as just being long all tech um, because there, there are there are winners and losers within that space. And there's a, an environment like this is kind of a crucible where you you have to have very specific characteristics in order to emerge stronger than you were going in. Um, and so there will, there will be lots of, of companies that will, that will end up in the dustbin of history, regardless of sector, even in technology. But we do think that, that technology is enabling a significant amount of, uh, a significant level of opportunity for for businesses in that sector and, and others. And that's why it's so interesting from our perspective is we have a relatively uh, nuanced 
description of what we think the, the technology sector looks like because you know we do think that software is becoming ever more present across the economy uh, and more and more businesses that were traditionally considered in other sectors are looking more and more like technology companies even though they're providing maybe a non-technology product or service to their end customer um, but they're probably deeply utilizing advanced technology to do that and, and if you if you haven't been a leader in investing in, in uh, the new way of doing business, which is now painfully evident to many, um, to be uh, cloud-centric, to be focused on a, a highly variable cost structure, and, and be very reactionary and agile. You know, you, you're not nearly in the position you could be. Many, you know, many think that the market is trading ahead of underlying fundamentals. You mentioned valuation as one of your seven key criteria. Do you worry about portfolio company valuations at this point? Uh, yeah, I feel like there's two questions in there. Uh, so in the broad market, we, you know, I, I, we really don't tend to have an opinion. I think that it's, I, I don't think very much about the broad market because uh, we're not, we don't think of ourselves as relative investors. We're trying to generate absolute returns over long periods of time. And the only way to do that is to pay rational prices for superior assets where we think that rational investors in the future will pay the prices that we predict three, four, or five years from today. What's interesting from our perspective is because we think the COVID crisis is likely and hopefully to be transitory, which means that in the next six to 18 months, it will be in the in the rearview mirror. And I don't, I, I'm not saying that to be sort of diffuse. I, I just don't think we have a, a, a very clear lens on when to expect it necessarily will end. But I think it is important that we expect it to end um, at some point. And so as five-year investors, where all of our valuation work is driven by expectations in 2025, looking back to today for, for the vast majority of our businesses that they're, they're not the 2025 numbers are not severely inhibited by what's happened in, in all likelihood if we're if our research is right that's why we own the businesses and in some ways they've been enhanced in the case of nearly a third of the portfolio where, where numbers are actually higher not lower so net net present values have actually probably gone up net net a little bit across the portfolio despite clearly a very difficult operating environment for the next six to 12 months as we work through quarters where you have huge unemployment and shelter in place and so forth that are, you know, we expect numbers, you know, fundamental numbers to be very, very bad over the next few quarters. But equities as a as an instrument are supposed to do something very simple. They're supposed to take all future cash flows and discount them back to today, not just the next six quarters. And so because we're always looking out beyond that time frame and valuing the business, hopefully like a rational investor, you know, we're quite optimistic. We're, we're at a point now where uh, you're five months into the year and you know, we're in a position where thankfully we're up on the year a little bit, but we were optimistic coming into the year in the five-year timeframe. But five months in, you know, that's a significant amount of, of distance. If, we're, you know, if we invest, you know, we're looking at 60 months at a time, you know, we're nearly 10% closer to that original five-year endpoint that we were first looking at you know, last December. And, and here we are having not made much material progress toward those valuations. So, and then not only that, you know, as active managers, we're able to upgrade the portfolio pretty consistent, pretty significantly like we've done this year when opportunities present themselves. So I, I don't have a comment on the broad market. I, I do think there are, we see pockets where certain stocks are clearly very expensive. Those are the ones we don't own. Um, and then 
you know, but I, I'm very comfortable with the idea in the, in the context of a five-year time frame that the portfolio that we own today uh, is trading at a at a substantial discount to present value. So, g- given that context of looking, uh, you know, out five years and trying to see through the current crisis, what what keeps you up at night? Yeah, I mean, listen, I, I think that this has been, you know, just you know, watching the news hasn't hasn't been very much fun. I I, I do worry about. The fact that is our duration expectation that this will be over by the end of 2021 in our most conservative view of things, is that accurate? You know, there, there are, we, we talk to lots of people, read lots of information, and we know reputable people that think that, you know, there's a risk that this goes on longer than that. I, I think that's the, that's the thing that, you know, we, we have to be mindful of where we're monitoring that constantly. We will adapt as we find evidence that suggests that, you know, that, that we're too conservative, you know, or we're too optimistic. But I think we're, we're uncommonly balanced uh, in, in the market in terms of thinking about these things from having some names that are benefiting from the, the crisis, some that are only modestly impacted and some that are severely impacted. You know, the, the longer it goes on, we do have a, a, a significant portion of the portfolio that will, that will do well. Um, I, I worry more about the long-term economic damage to a protracted crisis and, and what it could mean for, for society at large. But from a portfolio perspective, you know, th- th- that's a second order consideration on that front. And then I think, you know, the, the flip side is ironically, you know, one of the things we, we spend a lot of time thinking about is do we own the right portfolio for the maximum number of scenarios going forward because we don't know the severity or duration of the crisis you know exactly how the summer will unfold what next fall will look like or next winter you know do we have the appropriate level of balance across the portfolio and that that's probably the thing i spend the most time thinking about and then just making sure that we have a really robust pipeline of potential replacements for the portfolio in the event that an individual security or two become significantly dislocated uh, in value for us to be able to pick up and, and enhance the portfolio returns. Well, Jim, thank you so much for joining us uh, this afternoon on our podcast. Uh, really appreciate it. Thank you again for listening. For more information about Choate Investment Advisors, you can visit www.choateia.com. That's C-H-O-A-T-E-I-A.com. You can also listen to more of our episodes in the newsroom of our website and subscribe to them wherever you listen to podcasts, including iTunes, Google Play, and Spotify. Thanks again. The information provided in this recording is for informational purposes only. While Chode Investment Advisors makes every attempt to present accurate information, the information on this recording may not be appropriate for your specific circumstances, and it may become outdated over time. The views expressed on this podcast are personal opinions only and should not be construed as financial advice for your given situation. Moreover, the views expressed by Jim Robillard of Spyglass are not necessarily endorsed by Chode Investment Advisors, and Chode Investment Advisors may decide to select investments on a different basis at any time and without prior notice. Finally, as everyone should know, past performance is not a guarantee of future performance.